Welcome to Sophist Security Chat Chat, episode 132 for the 28th of January, 2014. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm here with my friend Paul Ducklin. Welcome, Paul. Hello, Chester. May I just say to you and your family, happy Data Privacy Day. Well, thanks, Duck. Uh, it is, in fact, Data Privacy Day, and um, maybe later on in the podcast we can share some tips and advice for our listeners on on maintaining that privacy uh, against uh, what sometimes can seem like an overwhelming quantity of organizations uh, asking us to surrender it. Or surrendering it for us without asking, which I've got a sneaking suspicion is going to be your first topic of interest. Yeah, unfortunately, the retail credit card theft saga continues. Um, we don't have really any uh, additional news uh, with regards to Target, per se. Um, Neiman Marcus has revealed that they lost 1.1 million cards uh, that were taken from their point-of-sale systems between July of 2013 and October of 2013. That's four months' worth, presumably with malware, on their systems, and nobody noticed. That almost makes Target, the malware was there apparently for under a month, look like they did a good job. Yeah, well, actually, technically, I guess you'd have to say it was like seven months or so because uh, they didn't notice in October of 2013. Uh, they were made aware in mid-December 2013 by credit card companies that uh, an awful lot of fraud was tracing back to their customers. And so they brought in a forensics firm who only were able to confirm the incident on January 1st. So it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's even worse than the four months. It's quite astounding to think... Um, that it went on that long, and, and mysteriously, that somehow it all abruptly stopped at the end of October. Yes, it gives a whole new meaning to the word month-end, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does raise questions as to how that, that might have happened, although uh, there were some suspicions, perhaps, that they uh, imaged their computers on some sort of a schedule, and that imaging was able to delete the implanted malware that the crooks had put there. Although, you know, a lot of these criminals, uh, they don't give up so easily, so it's, it's a little surprising to me to think that if if I had compromised someone and uh, gotten away with it for three months and, and somehow uh, some system change eliminated uh, that access, I, I think I'd probably go back at it if I thought their security was that shoddy. Particularly if you think it's down to re-imaging and you suspect what they may have done is restored an image that was presumably created some time ago. It might have removed the malware, might have reintroduced the hole that got you in in the first place. Yeah, well, I guess more details of that will, will come forth down the line. And uh, a third company has stepped up uh, as well over the weekend. On, on Saturday, a company called Michael's, which is the largest North American craft store. They, they sell uh, things for artists and people making home crafts and this type of thing. They, they operate in the United States and in Canada. And um, with over 1,200 stores, they're quite a significant size company. They they haven't said how many cards were stolen, but it sounds like it's a very early developing story that, uh, again, they were alerted by card companies that many people having fraudulent charges all trace back to having done business with Michaels. But Michaels has yet to even themselves confirm whether there's malware present on their systems. I think it's a little too early for them to, uh, to note. Yes, you don't generally imagine that when you go to buy your embroidery supplies that uh, you're going to have your... PII stolen at the same time, do you? I guess there is a sunny side to that, which is to say 
rather than wait and, and, and potentially expose customers to more time that they don't know they should be looking for fraud, they at least came out right away and said, hmm, we haven't even confirmed anything yet, but we have strong enough reason to believe we've been compromised that we want to let our customers know that they should be checking their credit reports and that type of thing. So I guess you could give them points for that. Yes, because if you do go and look at your transactions, if you've shopped there and then you see stuff that you know you didn't buy bought at other stores in other places, it usually is a bit of a giveaway. So there usually are telltale signs if you have been carded and uh, with prompt action, you can actually do something about that and hopefully get your money back. Yeah, and in the Neiman Marcus case, uh, they released that 2,400 of their customers were knowingly, uh, their cards were knowingly used for fraud. So when you look at that as a proportion of the 1.1 million, I guess the good news is uh, a small percentage of victims who had their card data stolen actually end up having fraudulent charges on their cards. But 2,400 is nothing to sneeze at. So if we can assume that Michael's being a significantly larger chain than Neiman Marcus, uh, we will probably uh, be seeing a larger number of, of victims. Yes, and it does seem a trifle sad that we can even contemplate saying, oh, well, it's okay. It was only 2,400 people actually had their cards abused. Uh, you know, that's cold comfort to the 2,400, isn't it? Yeah, I guess it is cold comfort, but uh, the the other 998,000 people are probably pretty happy that um, they, they managed to dodge a bullet, if you will. Yes, and it does rather show the importance of data breach notification, whether that's a company doing it because they feel it's the right thing or doing it because regulations compel them to. It does show the dangers in countries which still don't have breach notification laws uh, of sweeping stuff under the carpet. You may never know, and with only, say, 2,400 out of a million people, you might not notice unless you're primed to go and look. So as you say, the fact that there is a warning out there that may save another few hundred people who might otherwise not have realized. And that would be very, very definitely a silver lining. Yeah. And to, to kind of finish off the trifecta of card theft stories, there was a story this uh, week in the news that was getting quite a lot of attention in the United States around uh, card skimmers installed on gas station uh, pumps that were uh, exfiltrating the data via Bluetooth, I guess, presumably to prevent the thieves from needing to physically, you know, open up the gas pump to retrieve their device and get the card data that they've stolen. In this case, by gas, you mean liquid automotive fuel, don't you? Yes. I've only ever experienced those or used those in the US. They're quite small devices and you have to get out of your car and there's a, a fuel pump with all its attendant sort of industrial nature and a small little card reader. Because it's very different from an ATM where there's all sorts of information going around about what to look for. It's hard to give privacy advice about how to know whether you should swipe. And if you're stuck and you absolutely need fuel and you don't have cash and you're used to paying by card, it's not surprising that people are getting caught. Yeah, I guess for people that are worried about it, North American service stations, you most often have the ability to pay inside or at the pump. I guess, you know, your point about an ATM is certainly a way to handle the situation. And it's a choice I've made several times lately in a retail situation. Uh, I was purchasing a tube for my bike tire at a small shop near my home a few weeks ago. And uh, after I saw that the cash register had Facebook open and the manager calling out to his employee to ask who had installed Photoshop on the cash register, 
I decided maybe it wasn't prudent to give him my Visa card and uh, made a trip to the ATM next door and paid in cash. Yes, that's uh, definitely a time when cash is your friend. Just to go back to the whole Bluetooth business, it's also common to see ATM or any skimming device use some kind of remote sensing or telemetry. GSM, having a mobile phone in there that can send messages out, is also very common. And you're right, the reason the crooks like that is it means that they only have to make a trip to the uh, compromised device once or twice. Once to install it, which they could have done in the factory if it's a portable device, and uh, once to retrieve it if they don't want, if they want to get their equipment back, or if they want to disguise the fact that there's been a compromise. But they don't have to keep going there and somehow downloading the data. The data sends itself to them. Sadly, the crooks don't need very, very high integration skills to be able to build this stuff. They can take off-the-shelf devices, a video recorder, a mobile phone, etc., and jam them together behind some believable-looking moldings, or, as in this case, I understand, actually built into the device in advance. And it really can be difficult for a customer to tell that there is something fishy going on. Yeah, and I, I think I, I go back to the first story here, and you know, when we talked about people checking their statements carefully, say if they shopped at Neiman Marcus or if they shopped at Michael's, and just take that a step further and make it a habit to just check your statements all the time. Uh, you can be careful, but you you can't always know or guarantee that you're going to be safe. In almost all jurisdictions in the world where uh, payment cards are frequently used for daily transactions, you have protection uh, against fraudulent transactions. And the only way you can be sure that they're not there is to carefully look at that bill. Don't just, you know, scan the total at the bottom and go, yeah, 600 bucks, that seems about right. Look at those details, make sure those things are legitimate. And if something doesn't look right, uh, question it and, and, and figure out where it came from. To, to be sure that your charges are correct, because uh, the, these things are well-hidden and often very sophisticated devices, and you can't always notice. And keep, for example, as a contact number in your mobile phone, the same number you'd use, for example, if you lost your credit or your debit card. Keep that number handy, and if you see anything suspicious in a payment or on a payment device, whether it's an ATM or a device in a restaurant or a pub for paying or at a fuel station, report it to the bank. And also, in most jurisdictions, the cops would love for, to hear from you too. If they're aware of machines where devices have been installed, they can go and retrieve them and perhaps get forensic information that can lead them back to the crooks. Speaking of safety and security, uh, our colleague John Hawes uh, published an article on Naked Security this week talking about this concept of the throwaway password. I know um, you and I have discussed this in a techno previously. Uh, but John kind of comes down on the side of, you know, no password is, I was going to say no password too small, but of course there are passwords that are too small. Uh, but let's say no password is unimportant enough to surrender it to, uh, to anybody who kind of stumbles along the path, if you will. Yes, we've argued this before, haven't we? Saying if you're offering a web service where you genuinely think it doesn't matter if someone has the password one, two, three, four, five, six, because hey, it doesn't matter if their password gets compromised because it's not really that important. Why have a password at all? You know, Why have a lock that you know is not going to work? It's kind of pointless. Rather make the statement to say this site does not use passwords because that is the nature of the site rather than give a false sense of security. Because you argued this in the tech note very convincingly to me saying I could have 
50 accounts on, say, news sites where I've only signed up so I can read some comments and maybe post. If I give them all a simple identical password because I don't care, and someone guesses or finds that password to all of those sites, they will actually be hurting my reputation perhaps by posting garbage under my name, but also they'll be hurting all my buddies because my buddies will be more inclined to believe those bogus postings. So there is a knock-on effect, and I absolutely agree with you. No password too unimportant. Which leads us right into the topic we began with, uh, Data Privacy Day, uh, January 28th. It hasn't received a lot of media attention in the past, although I've, I've noticed there's been some steam picking up this year, which is really good news. Uh, I guess my initial request of our listeners would be that you participate, and maybe you can help raise awareness amongst your friends and family on some quick and easy tips on things you should do to, to stay more private online and, and the importance of privacy. And uh, I know we, we've got some uh, a lineup of posts that you can find on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Yes, Chester, our, our colleague Mark Stockley has come up with the 30-day privacy diet. At the end of the 30 days, you may well find you can actually live with this new way of working You'd have discovered the new digitally safer you. Don't just do things because they're the defaults and everyone else is doing them. Go out and find whether actually you can uh, live a safer digital lifestyle. Well, I, I particularly uh, liked your posting, a look back from the future, if you will. Uh, it was a uh, very well done look at where we could go if we become too complacent. Yes, I don't want to spoil that, but it is uh, parody. Privacy Day 2044. Um, so have a look at that if you want to see where we could go if we all take the easy route and just let the data collecting companies of the world have their way. Maybe that's what we want. I suspect that it probably isn't. And therefore, if we want to change the world of 2044, today is a good day to start doing that. And I also uh, have a post I put together um, suggesting that privacy is not dead. We're just doing it wrong. Looking into the seemingly innocuous stuff that we're asked to give up all the time for some privileges or benefits uh, all around in our lives and to question those things and determine whether uh, you know it truly makes sense to share this information. I think a lot of people feel compelled when asked by someone they have a legitimate business relationship with to, to surrender information if they're asked for it. And I'm going to go into some of the details on where and what you should be questioning and uh, times that you may wish to stay more informed by saying no. You're quite right, Chester, because that's exactly the sort of behavior that, you know, someone you think you trust says, oh, well, so what's your birthday? What's your postal code? What's your address? What's your phone number? Where you've never given that before and you don't have any inclination or particular need to do so. It's not necessary to cough up all of that stuff in the same way that when you visit a website that looks legitimate but suddenly asks for your birthday, your CVV, your mother's maiden name, all of that stuff, a classic fish. You know you're not supposed to put that kind of data in. Why do it with what would otherwise be considered lesser PII? If in doubt, don't let it out. That's a great way to end the podcast. Uh, that concludes Software Security Chat Chat 132. As always, for the latest security news, you should visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And for all of our podcasts, our RSS feed, um, all the different audio parts that we produce at Sophos are available at soundcloud.com slash Sophos Security. Until next time, stay secure.